Hello and welcome to the Guns on Pegs podcast. This is episode eight. Thank you ever so much for joining us once again. Before we go on into the meat of the podcast, I want to say thank you to everybody who got in touch following our previous episode. Most of the messages were pretty complimentary. One or two of them were unbroadcastable. (laughs) But either way, we love getting the feedback. So keep sending us your thoughts, please. Once again today, I'm joined by Chris and also by Frank. Say hi, guys. Hey, George. Hello, George. We've got another great guest today. It nearly didn't happen, but we've managed to get there. So, Chris, Frank, who's going to tell me about our guest? Our guest today was described by the editor of Shooting Times as one of the best side-by-side game shots in the country. Ooh, uh... and, and by the former editor of Field Sports magazine as a one-time banana baron. Along with our editor, as uh, George, you described as one of the one of the best dressed men in shooting. So, Frank, go on, tell us a little bit more. So, yeah, it's the one and only Edward King, managing director of ASI. Who, for those of you out there who don't know what it is, they are the distributors of Rosini Italian shotguns, AYA Spanish shotguns, and uh, a number of other brands. Welcome. Well, it's very nice to be here, gentlemen. Thank you. Very much indeed for having me. And after an introduction like that, how can I possibly not disappoint? (laughs) Why might Marcus Janssen describe you as a one-time banana baron? I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) And I mean, I seriously have no idea. Uh, Marcus and I go back a long way, and he's obviously got memories of events which I have no longer got memories of. (laughs) (laughs) I thought for a moment you were were going to uh, insert that little snippet, which was... I think, um, used by Charlie Jacoby after some event, where he says, Edward King puts the Edward back into Edwardian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a very good line. Actually, yeah. he's, he's coming on our podcast soon, so uh, we, we can have a chat about that then. So tell us, how is the world of, of, of ASI and the various brands? Maybe a little bit of intro on that, actually, for those that aren't aware. We're a smallish business within the gun trade, but we've been going for quite a long time, and um represent what we would like to call household names. Certainly AYA, I think, is known to um, almost anybody who has swung a gun uh, at some point in their life. Uh, The number of times we get people coming up saying, oh, you do AYAs. My first gun was an AYA. I then always ask, what's your current gun? And (laughs) the the, the smile then wanes from my face, generally. (laughs) But uh, so AYA, yeah, as I said, known to everybody. Rizzini, possibly not quite so well known to uh, everyone, although we have been working with them for eight years now, and their company has been going for 52 years. Uh, It's a family company. They're based in Italy, and... They're very much after our own hearts insofar as they are big enough in terms of manufacture and production to have some quite sophisticated machinery, but they're small enough so that if they need to be flexible and versatile, they can be. Uh, So we do a lot of special orders. Um, They're able to actually make a special order for us on even a relatively inexpensive model. Obviously, the, the very cheapest that they do have to be made in series, but uh, we can turn out a tailor-made one-off for an individual um, on a gun that's three, three and a half grand, which most other big manufacturers uh, just wouldn't be able to look at. That's definitely something I've noticed with with the Rizzini models. They're rather well-priced and also very well-designed for that money as well. I I think think that's right. Um, They work, uh, Giuseppe Rizzini is uh, son of the founder and one of the chaps working in the the factory, 
on the design side, and he does have a particularly good eye for nice-looking guns. Um, he's a great designer of engravings as well. I don't know if it'll be familiar to you, but the, the RBEM engraving, which is a, a, a bold foliate scroll-type engraving with quite a lot of relief, uh, was his design, and he then developed that into the, the, the Regal, which is the side-plated version, and, and in my view looks absolutely stunning. Of course, as an aside, Rizzini engravings do tend to look good anyway because they're one of the few, I won't say necessarily the last, but they're one of the few gun makers in Italy that have their uh, engraving laser cut but then finished by hand, which does give it a totally different look to your average laser cut engraving, which is tends to be very flat and, and angular. The hand finishing on a, on a Rizzini shotgun, especially if you look at it at different angles in and out of the light, you will see rather like, funnily enough, rather like a, looking at a, uh, at a nicely cut jewel. When you change the angle, you will see different reflections and, and, and different bits, which you wouldn't necessarily, well, which not you wouldn't necessarily, but you just will not have on a basic laser engraving. You mentioned that AYA is obviously a popular brand. Do you know, uh, do you know exactly how popular? I don't know exactly how popular. I would probably hedge my bets by saying somewhere between fairly and quite. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, so uh, in terms of brands, where do you think it ranks? I'd say somewhere in the top four in terms of recognition of the brand. Spot on. In at, in at number three. So In at number three, there we are, yeah. In the game shooting census, we ask this question every year, which brand of shotgun do you use most often? Right. I'm looking at 7,500 respondents here and AYA yeah. number three. Excellent. So 7% market share. It's also worth pointing out that both Frank and I use an AYA. Well, that makes three of us. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes three of us. Now, I have to say that I, I, I have a, a particular fondness for AYA, I, apart from the fact that the, uh, the companies, um, ASI and AYA, do go back a long way. As you can imagine, the links are more than just commercial. They are very personal as well. My father went to live in Spain for, well, two and a half decades and, and, and used to go to the factory almost, on an almost daily basis. And so we got to know the AYA family, which is actually the Aaron Thabel family, uh, particularly well. So uh, uh, it's a great relationship. Edward, I think we'll talk about that in some depth in just a minute. But I think okay. before we go much further, I think it's about time that I ask everybody what it is that they are drinking. Now, Edward, I'm going to guess with your connections, it's either going to be something... Spanish or maybe something Italian? Two very, very close guesses. Uh, and in fact, you sh if, you'd shot, if you'd shot in the middle of the two uh, and hit France, um, you'd have been right. It is French. It is French. Uh, uh, you will all recall that our originally aborted attempt last week did see me having a, a bottle of Spanish wine. I've got a bottle of French wine here. It's a, it's a Gamay from the Loire. I've got a particular affinity with it because it's it's the vines that actually surround our house. It's a family house that, that me and my brothers and sisters and parents have spent many, many years in. And, and these vines literally surround the house. So uh, it has lots of uh, good memories for me. And it actually happens to be a, a very nice wine as well. The Gamay grape, for those who are not um, initiated, is the same grape as the Beaujolais grape. And for those of you who are daft enough to drink it, Beaujolais Nouveau is... Um, made with uh, Gamay, although I'm pleased to say that Beaujolais Nouveau seems to have died a bit of a death now, um, and it might not mean anything at all to you. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
But Edward, I think you deserve special points for being the first person to bring an entire bottle of wine onto the podcast. <laughs> Most people so far have just had the one drink, which I think. So I think that you know, definite, uh, definite well, brownie points. There. I was told that this podcast might go on for forty minutes, so I will see if I can stretch <laughs> this bottle of wine out. It's <laughs> <laughs> got another one under the desk, just in case. <laughs> I, I'm looking at another six, but <laughs> but I don't think we'll need to, to pop the corks on any of those. Chris, what have you got? If if Edward's drink is a AYA number one in style, mine is very much a AYA number four box lock. Uh, it, it's a Whitstable Bay Pale Ale, a lovely beer, and it's now that I live in Kent uh, and not Suffolk, up with you guys anymore. It's the closest coastal brewery to me it's a really nice little beer from over that way i went over there the other weekend picked some up thought that would be nice for the podcast so yeah definitely encourage you to try it does it have sort of slight hints of the sea in it with that slightly iodine salty sort of hints in the background or is it uh <laughs> that is a very mature wine palette you're talking about right there that you've obviously <laughs> you've obviously perfected it tastes just like any other parallel to me but it's quite nice frank what are you on after being asked in the pub last time I was in whether I was sponsored by St. Peter's or Adnams from people that had been hearing the podcast before, I am currently not sponsored by either of those breweries, but very much open to being so in the future. <laughs> I have, and I promise this is the last time that I'll shamelessly plug one one, one of these beers because it's probably getting a bit dull for everyone else, although I'm enjoying it immensely. I've got a bottle of St. Peter's whiskey beer, which is oh, actually wow. a, a beer which they did in partnership with the English Whiskey Company, um, a collaboration, which are, is, a, is a whiskey company, um, an award-winning whiskey company based in Norfolk. So they actually went to the dark side a little and did a, um, a collaboration with, with someone in Norfolk. But it's it's very nice. The kind of concept is it that there's a measure of of whiskey in the within the beer. Um, I guess not not for the in the bottle, but you know in the in the larger volume of beer, which gives it that kind of peaty, smoky overtone almost. And it it is actually nice. It works very well. I wouldn't want to have sort of five of them in a row, but it's a lovely beer to have on a Monday evening when I'm not planning on drinking six bottles of wine. And it saves having to order a chaser. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, no, it's it's very good. And again, highly recommend St. Peter's. They do some awesome beers. Mm. They're the Ipswich Brewery, aren't they, St. Peter's? No, St. Peter's are Bungie. Oh, Bungie, all right. Suffolk or Norfolk? Suffolk. Just inside? Yeah, South just, just inside. Just, South. Yeah. yeah. Full of Norwich supporters, though, isn't it? Nothing wrong with that. Not, not now it isn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well yeah but they're not Ipswich fans either are they <laughs> exactly there's none of them left no it's not a not good time to be an East Anglia football supporter George what are you what are you up to I have got a gin and tonic but not just any gin and tonic I think it's a game-changing gin and tonic I've got silver fox gin which has got sort of citrusy notes and I've got it with fever tree mediterranean tonic and a slice of orange and I'm not joking when I say that it is absolutely the best gin and tonic I've ever had. They're just so good. My dad put me onto this a couple of weeks ago, and I instantly went online and ordered a bottle. And it's called Silver Fox. Yeah, very nice. Lots of ice. It's absolutely perfect for this sort of weather and uh, this time of year. So, Edward, tell tell us a bit about the the background of, of ASI. Obviously, you mentioned this close affiliation with, with the Aranthabel family, and we obviously know... Alex quite well from his his yeah. time uh, joining us for a drink in London mm. but um how did you how did you sort of get started in this then um crikey well uh, this might be repetitious for some people um but uh, it was it was purely by accident my father and and his brother and brother-in-law 
and my grandparents used to go on holiday in Barcelona quite regularly, or north of Barcelona, in the days when, when there were just a whole series of, of little villages there, little fishing villages that had rooms to let and so on, um, nothing like what it's become. And they happened to be out there one year, and this must have been about probably 59, I think. And uh, it, was, it was a rainy day, so they didn't go to the beach, and they went decided to go and do some shopping. And they were traipsing through the streets of Barcelona and walked past a gun shop, which were actually fairly well dotted about in Barcelona at the time. And they looked in the window, and there was a side-lock shotgun that looked for all the world like quite a nice gun, a decent piece of wood, the engraving looked very good, and, uh, and the, whole, the whole line looked quite uh, elegant. So they, they popped in, and they asked the bloke behind the counter in their sort of pidgin Spanish, you know, where, how much does it cost? And the chap gave him some absolutely ludicrous price, uh, by which, I mean, it was something like about 45 or 50 quid. And my father said, you know, you're absolutely sure. To which the shopkeeper in traditional Catalan style said, well, we can talk about the price if you like. <laughs> um, my, my father was, was uh, actually sort of angling for a different, uh, a different response. Um, anyway, so he found out that it was made in the um, Basque country. They got back to England. They got on an airplane. Actually, no, before they got on the airplane, they contacted a thing called the Spanish Chamber of Commerce in London and said, could you send us a list of gun makers in Spain expecting to get back I don't know, a list of, of, you know, maybe 30, 40 names? And a ream of paper came back with, with, you know, maybe 250 names, varying in size from right at the top. Uh, well, actually, AYA was right at the top, uh, purely in terms of, of employees uh, and production capacity, but it included... Sarasqueta, Guartechea, Sariugarte, a whole load of, of, of names. And so they, they literally just said, right, well, there's no point going to see anyone who has fewer than, I don't know, 25, 30 employees. So they took appointments with various people, got on an airplane, uh, got an interpreter, super chap called Jesus April, <laughs> um, or Jesus Abril, uh, whose, whose English was definitely worse than my father's Spanish. But anyway, they, they stuck with him and, and they went to see some of these people. And the, the deal was in those days, rather like it is uh, in many uh, gun makers, um, you arrive, uh, depending on the time of day, they'll give you coffee or, uh, or a sherry or you look at a, at a nice tabletop with the green bays on it and uh, maybe half a dozen shotguns. And they will tell you how much each of them costs. Anyway, this went on for the whole of the first day and it went on for the morning of the, of the second day. And at lunchtime on the second day, they, they happened to find themselves at AYA, which was a very, very smart affair with a mosaic floor with the big lion AYA logo in let into it and so on. And the, the chairman at the time was a chap called Augustine Arenthabel, who was a sort of diminutive bloke, very sort of twitchy, nervous sort of chap, very charming, and um, spoke not a word of English, didn't really speak that much Spanish. But, but was proudly um, and obstinately Basque. So the, the, the interpretation had to go from English into Spanish, Spanish into Basque, uh, and then they'd get their answer in the other direction. So I'm sure quite a lot was lost in translation. But they talked about shooting and shooting partridges in Spain and shooting pheasants in England and grouse and all the wonderful things that we in England have to offer when it comes to game shooting, and guns in particular, because the Spanish were very much... Um, admirers of the of the English gun making tradition. Anyway, this then led to lunch. They went out and had a very good lunch, which is uh, probably extremely well lubricated. 
came back, had a coffee in the office, and then my father just said, you know, are we going to see any guns? He said, oh, yes. He said, sorry, I forgot. Hmm. Anyway, and they took him around this factory, and the factory was on four floors, and I don't know how many square meters, but I, at, at a conservative estimate, it was probably in excess of 1,600 or 2,000 square meters of, of manufacturing space with every machine you can imagine. And it was the sort of thing where you got tree trunks and billets of steel going in one side and finished guns of all different qualities coming out of the other end. They even used to make the screw for the bridle inside the lock plate with their own thread so that nobody would be able to use their parts in, uh, in, in their own shotguns. What year was this? 1959. And anyway, and having looked at the factory, I was and said something which stuck in my father's mind saying, you can see what we can do. You guys make the best shotguns in the world. Ask us to make something and we'll make it for you. And my father thought this was actually a rather better idea than just plumping for the, the sort of previous models he'd seen at the other makers because they weren't really prepared to alter too much. So anyway, they, they got back to England. I think my father at the time had a, or got hold of a Holland and Holland Royal. And um, they got a Wesley Richards standard non-detachable box lock, which uh, they sent down to the factory and they said, right, that's a side lock, that's a box lock. Make us a box lock ejector and a box lock non-ejector and make us a, a nice side lock and a slightly more affordable side lock. And the, so the nice side lock was the number one. The more affordable one was the number two. The box lock ejector was the number four, uh, paradoxically, and the box lock non-ejector was the number three. And it was on that that they built a range of guns. Um, I would say the rest is history, but it is, uh, you know, the, the expansion of AOA in, in the UK in the 60s and 70s was uh, meteoric. Yeah, I mean, if you shoot game and to have not seen or shot with one of those, it'd be... It, yeah, yeah, it's unusual. But I think actually probably the, the biggest stroke of genius that they, that they had was with the invention of a model called the Yeoman, which was a totally no-frills box lock non-ejector. And it had plain piece of wood and no embellishments whatsoever, but it was built like a brick outhouse and bomb-proof. And I think someone explained it to me many years ago when I was on a shoot. And he said, of course, the reason that the Yeoman was so successful is that when it actually came out, it was the first new gun that a lot of people were able to afford. People who otherwise would have had to have bought, uh, you know, shot out secondhand English or something Belgian and dodgy. This was a gun which was brand new, had disc set strikers, independent firing pins, chopper lump barrels, stocked up at the head like a proper shotgun, and they didn't need to, to borrow any money to buy it. And they sold by the container load. And so, Edward, since you've been involved, I mean, or well, I suppose since your family's been involved, the, the, the shooting world and, and obviously the gun world have gone through a fair few changes. Are there any that sort of stick out in your mind? Massive, yeah. Well, yeah, I think probably actually just around about the time um, that I was joining the gun trade, having been immersed in it uh, by my ankles, rather like poor Achilles, was the 1988 Firearms Amendment Act, which followed the uh, Michael Rand's um, massacre at Hungerford. That was, I think, uh, when all of a sudden things changed for the, for, for the gun world, because the new certificate came out, which may just be the only certificate that, that any of you have ever known, 
but I'm an old, old man. And, and I can remember my first certificate was a little piece of paper, which was about four inches by five with my name on it in the postcode. And, and that was my shotgun certificate. And that, that enabled me to, to own, buy and own shotguns. And if I wanted to order one, I could ring up a dealer or a gun shop or whatever and say, look, this is my certificate number is such and such. Can you send me a shotgun? And they pack one up in a box and post it to me. And that, that particular act of parliament changed that radically because not only was the sale of shotguns by mail order banned, but all sales had to be done on a face-to-face basis. The, the shotgun certificate holder had to produce the original of his certificate, which could then be checked by the, by the retailer or the seller to make sure it was he or she. The details had to be entered on. The whole procedure for obtaining one was was tightened up dramatically. And of course, at the same time, the firearm certificate, uh, the new style firearm certificate uh, came into being as well with uh, a much more stringent good reason clause. And and that good reason clause was occasionally by uh, unscrupulous uh, firearms licensing officers used on shotguns as well, even though it was actually... Uh, totally ultra-virus to do that. So that was, I think, the first big, big change. And what about in terms of what people are looking for in terms of a gun? Well, that that was my next one, I think, is is that actually towards the late 70s and early 80s, the ability for people to make shotguns by machine was developing at a very, very advanced rate. And the Italians in particular actually cottoned onto this and, and understood it very well. And they put a lot of uh, time and resources into interchangeable parts, CAD-CAM uh, design and manufacture, um, ever, ever decreasing tolerances, which enabled you to make shotguns on a large scale in terms of quantity uh, and obviously keep the price of the shotgun itself um, more and more increasingly affordable. Something that actually, when you're doing make, making guns by hand, you just cannot do and you cannot compete. And actually, it's it's an area where the Spanish gun making sector as a whole did take their eye off the ball. In Spain, I suppose one has to understand that certainly in those days, they were coming out of a period of, of uh, Franco's administration where the market was incredibly protected from imports. And uh, not only that, there were quite heavy subsidies available to people who were exporting. In addition, hand labor was cheap. So rather than invest, let's say, a quarter of a million in machinery, uh, it was much easier to take on another you know, dozen, 15, maybe even 20 people uh, because they weren't expensive to take on. And of course, the downside to that is that human beings um, require paying, which is uh, very tiresome uh, from a manufacturer's point of view. And they get sick and take days off and they have holidays, and some of them are not as good as others. Whereas a machine, once you've got it set up and it's working its shifts, just requires someone to, to make sure it keeps going. So that happened in the late 70s, early 80s. And by the late 80s, I think the over and under was well and truly um, here to stay and was, was catching up with, if not probably overtaking by that stage, the, the side-by-side as a, certainly as a first gun, because shooting grounds we're becoming increasingly aware that it's actually easier to teach someone to shoot with an over and under than it is with a side by side. And that drift has now is, I wouldn't say it's complete, but it has totally overturned the, um, the, the balance there. Um, if you ask the average dealer how many side by sides they sell, 
in terms of new guns, I think you'd probably find that it's somewhere less than 5% uh, of, of, of the number of over and unders. Ironically, a lot of people still shoot with this game with Savas eyes. That segues brilliantly into... It does. <laughs> I was going to ask what your thoughts are on the future and obviously mentioning over and unders. There's, you know, AYA obviously bringing out their uh, over and under. It'd be great to know a bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, AYA has actually got a, a couple of, over and, of new over and unders on their books. One of them is the, it's called the Classic. It's rather nice. It's a rounded action, which very much fits the fashion at the moment. Made in Spain. And it's just, it's a very pleasant gun with a nice piece of walnut on it. Selective single trigger, as one would imagine. It's a principally hand-engraved gun. They use a certain amount of, of laser work, as does everybody. And usual barrel length, selective single trigger, very much in and of the, the AYA stable. So that's a gun that's going to come out, will be available. We're hoping to have some ready by the end of this year. Otherwise, certainly early part of next and the other one is at the other end of the scale is an absolutely stunning handmade shotgun, which they call the Senator. That is, although obviously built on a machine action, it is, it is fully hand-built and fully uh, hand-finished um, with, with a very, very beautiful engraving. And they're aiming, they're aiming basically at the market, which um, certainly the Senator aims at the AY number one market. Unashamedly, it's a best gun. Uh, and it looks like a best gun, and it's um, made totally to measure and to order. There's even a titanium action one available, which uh, sounds quite exciting. I haven't seen one myself, but the titanium action is is uh, a, a lightweight, uh, a lightweight gun, uh, which I'm told has some extraordinary handling qualities. It is it is their 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 offering of a number one, um, and the, the the train of thought basically is that people as we mentioned earlier, have started to shoot with AYAs, um, but are looking to change to over and under for whatever reason. I have fairly sort of entrenched views about why people do change to over and under, and I'm not always certain it's a solution, but I'm not going to, to argue against that particular configuration of shotgun. And people do want to have an AYA to shoot with because the loyalty to the brand is extraordinary. And uh, at AYA, I said, well, now at least you can have uh, a gun which is a, a classic AYA designed, built by AYA, finished by our best craftsmen to, to match and equal the number one. So we've got, you know, we've got quite, quite high hopes for that. And at the other end, it is you know, possibly the, the classic, which will be uh, retailing in the sort of three and a half uh, to four thousand pound bracket. Uh, once again, responds to that market need for an AYA in that affordable category, which still gives you um, an elegant gun with all the tradition and background that, that AYA offers. So, Edward, talking of all these developments, I think you're probably one of the best people to ask about, I suppose, the changes over the last year or so, and maybe especially this year with regards to lead shot and what's mm. going to be happening there, because because your brand would be well AYA is a brand that you represent would be exposed mm. heavily to that because of the older guns on the market but then obviously have a lot of newer guns so what's your feeling on that well actually i mean i uh, i think regardless of of um well let's let's put it this way uh, i think the argument as to whether we should or shouldn't change away from lead is has been had and and many tens and hundreds of thousands of words have been written and, and long, long hours of debate have been had. I think what we need to do as an industry is we need to address 
the fact that we will be moving away from lead. Um, and if we move away from lead, at the moment, the nearest and best option would be steel. Now, steel is not lead. It has different uh, performance characteristics, and it has different requirements in terms of gun making. So new guns... I don't think have a problem with, with, with steel. All that the gun maker needs to do is to be aware that, the, that, that they are building a gun for steel shot. The uh, CIP proofing requirements are well established and needless to say, any new AYA or even Rizzini for that matter is, is proofed and bears the fleur de lis mark. But AYA are not new to this. We have been proofing at the higher level uh, since the mid-90s. It gives you an indication of, of how long the lead shot argument has been going for. But AYAs have, as a matter of course, been, been proofed at 1200 bar since, I think, sort of early to mid-90s. Um, can, I, can I just yeah. ask a question on that? Because I think that um, one of the problems we're seeing with this debate is, is the lack of understanding from a customer's point of view about what they can use in their gun. Yeah. So when you say proof yeah. to the higher level, you mean proof to yeah. um, high-performance steel. Right. So... Exactly. So, so there are exactly now. It would in the days when we proved to the higher to that higher level of twelve hundred, the fleur de lis mark didn't exist, so it wasn't being used. But it gave it was the same level effectively, give or take a few bar, as um, as if you had it proved today with the the fleur de lis mark. Uh, but I think it's also quite important to to make clear the fact that. The absence of a fleur-de-lis or higher proof does not mean you can't use steel. Uh, the guidelines are, are quite clear, which is that you shouldn't have uh, a choke tighter than half choke in your barrel. If you have a two and three quarter or 70 mil chamber, you should use a cartridge which is suitable for uh, two and three quarters, 70 mil. And if you're using a standard normal gun, which hasn't been proofed at the higher pressure, you can still use up to 34 grams of number four shot in that gun, provided, as I said, that it's a two, three quarter inch cartridge and that you haven't got tighter than half choke in it. So steel will be available for a lot of people whose guns were not built for use with steel shot, as long as they have two, three quarter chambers and they're not tighter than half Which choke. Which takes a lot of guns into the market. That's the really important thing. There's a, there's a yeah. lot of guns that people don't realize that, that, that they could actually use steel for. Yeah. Yeah. But Edward, I've got. I'm going to abuse my position uh, as a host of the podcast to ask a, a, for a bit of personal advice. My gun, yeah. I know, hasn't got a fleur de lis stamp, and I also know that it's got full choke in one barrel, so it's yeah. unsuitable yeah. for either kind of uh, steel cartridge. Yeah. So uh, yes. if I mean, I imagine there's not going to be that many people out there with full choke in one barrel. But if if you are uh, uh, in the unfortunate position of owning a gun that isn't suitable for either standard or or high, high pressure, pressure steel, yeah. what would be apart from buying an entirely new gun, which I'm sure you would recommend? Well, you've got yeah, there, there there are a range of options actually open to you. The the first is uh, to consider, and this is a consideration, but you can consider having the choke open to half. Um, it is a perfectly normal gun making procedure to take out choke from a shotgun. Um, it doesn't damage the gun. It it actually relieves the choke, so it 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 would then allow you bring it down to somewhere below or half or, or, or just below. That would then allow you to use standard steel shot cartridges through it. That's that's number one option. Now it might be that you very specifically want that full choke because it's it's important to you uh, for the style of shooting that you're using it for. So 
um, you, if, if, if that is a deal breaker for you, then you will need to consider a non-steel replacement cartridge, um, of which currently, I think probably uh, bismuth, to my knowledge, is, is one of the few which, uh, which would do without damaging your gun. Uh, bismuth is a little more expensive than, than lead by a factor, but, but it depends what you're using it for. I, uh, for instance, have been up till very recently using bismuth for, uh, for shooting wildfowl because the requirement is that we don't use lead or that we use non-toxic. I don't, on an average duck flight, fire more than a pocket full of cartridges. So yes, my cartridges will be more expensive because they're, they're bismuth, but I'm not firing so many that it invalidates or makes the, the whole uh, exercise unaffordable. It's, it's, a, it's a, a horse of another color if you're going to shoot a 500 bird day in Yorkshire or, or Wales or whatever and, and fire 200 cartridges. Then bismuth is going to be very pricey. And, and so that brings me on to the next thing, which is, so your gun has got a set of barrels that are not suitable for, for steel chokes. You can have barrels made and fitted to that gun which are suitable for, for uh, steel shot. Um, once again, you, you need to bear in mind that half choke will be the tightest choke that you can have. But then half choke is a fairly decent choke. Uh, in, in, in the days when I started shooting, most people shot with improved cylinder and quarter and got on perfectly well. Uh, quarter and half is a ubiquitous choke now. And I know plenty of, of, of uh, perfectly competent shots without being you know, in the top ranks, who can shoot very nicely with, with quarter and half choke, whether they're shooting with lead or with steel. Yeah, choke's one of the mass- massively over-debated things because there's a, a big disconnect yeah. uh, with what people use in terms of cartridge uh, and then obviously have in their choke. So right. Um, yeah. So so you mentioned obviously getting barrels rebuilt. How about re-sleeving? Mm. That's been talked about. What, under uh, what circumstances yeah. might you consider that? Well, it's a less expensive way of rebarreling your gun. The problem with receiving the, your barrels is that you effectively chop the original barrels up because what they use is they, they use the lumps and the, and the chamber uh, and then they sleeve the tubes into the lumps and the chamber. So you have new tubes with more appropriate wall thicknesses and uh, new rib top and bottom. Uh, but you won't have your original barrel left. If you have a barrel, if you have a, a secondary barrel made as, a, as an extra barrel, uh, your first one remains intact. So you have that uh, flexibility. I mean, that said, um, no, actually, I think it makes sense. If you, if you, if you have your, your second barrel, you can keep your first barrel with its tight choke for doing your duck flights or going goose mm. shooting or whatever it is you want to do. And then you have another barrel, which is quarter and a half choke, super steel shot proof, and you can use that for any form of steel shot for all your other shooting requirements, perhaps. So not to hold you to it, but from a price point of view, uh, what are we looking at for, I mean, I know it varies depending upon the model of AYA, for example, that Mm. you have, but could you give us a rough indication? Yes, I can. I think if you were going to, if you're looking at uh, having uh, an extra set of barrels for an AYA number two would cost you somewhere in the region of about three and a half grand for a pair of chopper lamp barrels. Now, yeah. you can tread onto a, a different path there, which is you can say to yourself, well, rather than three and a half grand for mm. my set of barrels, for my lovely and cherished gun, what I might do is actually look out on the market and see if I can find 
a second-hand number two of relatively recent build, you know, anything from 2000 onwards is guaranteed to be suitable for that, for, for, for seal shot. So you can have your seal shot gun and you can have your non-seal shotgun. Yeah, for three and a half grand, you're in that territory of thinking, I'll keep that gun, lovely as it is, and buy myself yeah. a modern OU, the Ritzini you spoke well, about. Well, absolutely, yeah. And then yeah. and then use that till the cows yeah. come home, knowing that it yeah. won't break. I mean, this exactly. is where the yeah. debate comes in. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I mean, I I, I, uh, I don't think that, that uh, a, a sort of 45-minute or one-hour podcast conversation is going to solve that particular problem but it's a useful thing to 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 be able to to ventilate as a concept which is which is what do you do to address the 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 arrival of 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 non-lead shot um and i think one's got to bear in mind that the the speed at which the cartridge makers will adapt shouldn't be underestimated either things have moved relatively slowly up to now but with good reason lead is the best material out of which to make the, the shot that goes in shotgun cartridges. And the reason we use it is because it's the best for the job. Uh, it's widespread, it's inexpensive, uh, it's malleable, it has the right density and all those sorts of things. So cartridge makers use that and made very good cartridges, make very good cartridges with lead. But now that someone has actually, you know, popped a, a, a flag on the horizon, the cartridge makers said, right, we know how to make lead, that's fine. We must concentrate now on developing alternatives with a level of of increased urgency because although it's a voluntary thing i think that once once we've all moved uh, in, the, in it to, to, to a new non-lead normal uh, lead will just uh, wither and, and 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 disappear so so the cartridge makers are addressing themselves to this and i will not be surprised and i won't be and and i know i won't be disappointed cartridge makers will over the next few months or couple of years or whatever come up with some quite exciting solutions to this challenge they are you know technically competent and 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 they will do it you know in 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 partnership or or at least parallel to the developments in in shotgun barrel making and so on so i certainly don't hold fears for people being able to shoot with cartridges that are not lead. So this wasn't supposed to be a self-help podcast <laughs> for, our, for our for our issues. <laughs> Sorry, I hijacked but, it. <laughs> but but uh, George and Frank, you guys make up the typical type of person in this scenario with your guns. Do you, what's your feeling on what what you'll what you'll do based on what Edward said? I'll probably bribe Edward into giving me a really good deal on one of these new over. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I've got absolutely no idea. I, I, it's all right. That can be edited out. <laughs> I'd rather it wasn't. Um, but see me after. <laughs> um, I think that this is something I've been considering. And I think actually I was going to message George earlier today about making this into some, some sort of editorial because I speak to a lot of different you know gun manufacturers, retailers or, or whatever. Um, and I actually don't know what the options are there are out there for me um i know you know we've just written written the piece on the william powell side by side which is obviously made by rosini and and that seems to have gone down down, mm. down very well um but outside of that i'd love to know what other options i've got for steel proofed and or three inch chambers just so that i know i'm covered no matter what kind of shooting i'm doing um and it'd be great to sort of have a an almost a list and a little bit of a breakdown of what those options are so and I think that actually probably we'll find that that will be forthcoming mm. from 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 the manufacturers anyway, yeah. uh, and from the from the cartridge makers 
uh, as they progress down this particular road. Um, because I think what's interesting, and I'm going to digress a little bit, uh, but intentionally here, is actually that the that the announcement that was made earlier this year by the um, council, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, whatever. Anyway, um, uh, this this sort of slightly uh, mysterious group came out with this announcement, but it wasn't just about lead; it was also about single-use plastics. And I uh, I feel very strong about single-use, strongly about single-use plastics as well, as I know that actually most of my game shooting friends and acquaintances do as well. And we uh, we talk about shooting, and we say, and and the conversation tends to go, well, it's all very well moving away from lead, but if we use plastic wads to take the lead from A to B, uh, and the plastic wad is left behind, uh, that has a, whatever it is, a half-life of of hundreds of years, potentially. So we are still filling the countryside, which we love, and which we like to keep in as good order as we can, with single-use, non-degradable plastics. So they address that by saying that we should be moving away from that as well. And huge strides have been made in, in... uh, degradable wards and degradable cases. Now, the case side of things is actually less of a challenge because I, I don't actually know. Well, I know one person uh, who refuses to pick up his empty shells uh, at the end of a drive, <laughs> but but that's just the way he is. Uh, but most of us, I think, I know. Does, does he make you do it own. then? No, no, it's very funny. No, he doesn't. He just says, when you go and shoot with him, he says, and leave your cartridges where you want. <laughs> So, um, he said, bizarre. "I'm not having, I'm not having old men bending over and scrabbling around in the mud picking up empty cartridges." So that's how he sells it. He has a chap come around afterwards with a magnet on the end of a stick and picks everything up. So, oh um, right, that's different. You know, so he's that, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. Isn't it? So, so even if we don't do it ourselves, somebody will do that at some stage, and we don't leave cartridge cases lying around the countryside. But those who shoot with 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 uh, with non-degradable wads, are still spraying plastic around the countryside, and arguably in, in a more uh, damaging way because they are impossible to go and find. You know, we're, we're spraying them around woods and into crops and goodness knows where else. So degradable wads, which are certainly starting to become available on the market, I think are a fantastic idea. And I think we have to, 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 to couch all that we say uh, with the perspective that we won't be able to do exactly what we have been able to do up to now. We've just got to accept that and adapt to, to, to what is going to be available for us. And I think that's, if, if we're grown up about it, then I don't think it's going to be too much of a problem or too much of a challenge. Um, there is instinctively part of us that says, you know, sod damn and blast it. Who are all these people who are telling us what we can do and what we can't do? But actually a bit of mature reflection in, 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 a, in an armchair, thinking about the, 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 the whole the whole thing of what we do, which is to, to be outside in the countryside and maintaining it, preserving it, and, and leaving it in arguably a better condition for the next generations, we've just got to be grown up. And, and spraying plastic around is not a good thing. If it means I can't go out and shoot my 55-yard pheasants with you know full choke and 38 grams of, of number four shot in a plastic wad, so be it. I could never hit them anyway. So um. <laughs> I think I think that's uh, that voice of wisdom has spoken, and that is a pretty good place to, uh, to to leave that conversation. I would say I think that you've summed you've summed it up very nicely. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a very nice place to leave it. So, Edward, thank you very much indeed for joining us and for persevering through 
power cuts and technical issues and all sorts. It's great to have you on the podcast at last. <laughs> and a thunderstorm this afternoon. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's great. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's Good been man. an absolute blast. And to everybody who's been listening, thank you very much for joining us once again. Do make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you sign up Guns on Pegs if you haven't done already. Make sure you get our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. Join us next time. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Bye.